So maybe maybe uh, you talk of the motivation and let him be the one that spurns our group to come out there at 3.30 and uh, be really loud and fired up. Hello and welcome in. It's always college football. Thanks so much for being with us. Wherever it is you're coming to us from, whether it's the podcast or if the ESPN YouTube page is how you're getting to us, we appreciate you being here. We have a great show in store for today, like all of our end-of-the-week shows. We always want to talk about the matchups. We try to break them down as best we possibly can, and I'm not going to try to spin it this week. The matchups leave a little to be desired. We have some interesting ones, and we'll break those down as best as we possibly can, but we're also going to give you a long list of games and teams that might not feel a ton of heat based on who they're playing against, but maybe something we'll be watching closely with them as they move forward in the season. For instance, just an example off the top of my head, Notre Dame. They've been great defensively, but if there's one thing I'd like to see from them, maybe a little better sack output, things like that. So we'll talk about Colorado. We'll talk about Alabama. We'll talk about Ohio State. None are likely to be threatened by the teams they're playing against this weekend, but there is something that they could potentially work on and potentially improve on as they move forward next week and the week after that into what should be much more difficult competition. But the big games of the weekend are pretty obvious, right? You got LSU and Mississippi State. You got Florida, Georgia. You got Georgia, South Carolina. You got Kansas State, Missouri. You got BYU, Arkansas. So there are some intriguing games. You got the backyard brawl between Pitt and West Virginia. We'll break those games down on both sides of the aisle, but we got a lot that we need to get to. As always, we continue to appreciate your support of the program by liking, by rating, by subscribing to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. If you can leave us five stars, that'd be awesome. We'd really appreciate that as we continue to pursue the college football season the way we think it should be pursued. Let's not waste any additional time. Let's get to some of the great matchups of the weekend. Well, on a limited slate, we look at some games and try to assess whether or not they can be competitive and some things that we're going to look at as it relates to some of the matchups, things that maybe haven't been operating with great consistency for some of the contenders. So the slate, like we've talked about, it's average this week. It's not going to lie. There's not a lot of great games, but we can find a reason to watch all of them and something maybe to key on in some of these matchups. Let's start with South Carolina at Georgia. We know how this rivalry's gone in the past. It's been funky. We've seen great Georgia teams lose to average South Carolina teams and vice versa. So I would never count South Carolina out in a matchup like this. I don't think they're going to beat Georgia. I'll start with that. But at the same time, there are some question marks with Georgia's health. They've been beat up throughout fall camp, and they continue to have problems at least as of this moment. Javon Bullard has an ankle sprain as of right now, a little bit unknown as to whether or not he's going to be available. He's the safety. Wide receiver Lad McConkey has been out the last couple weeks. Back injury suffered at the end of fall camp, which is concerning too, especially for a wide receiver that has such big play potential. Uh, you got Dylan Bell, who's been filling in at running back. He's healthy, by the way, but he's a wide receiver that's playing some running back because they're so beat up in the running back room. So it, it's just been a, I'm not going to say it's a mash unit by any stretch. You got Austin Blasky. You got guys that have been out that hopefully can make their way back. But right now, at least early in the season, Georgia's depth being challenged, but in a good way. I think you're getting some young guys in there and guys that you know you can rely on. Like for instance, we know 
We know Lad McConkey's fine. Like we don't need to see him right now against lower level competition and or against South Carolina to know that he can be a factor down the road when the level of competition increases drastically. Another thing that I'm watching with Georgia, the offensive line has not, I know it's a very talented group. I know it's a very capable group, but as of right now, I don't feel like they're playing their best football. Wouldn't expect them to be. It's week three. Several offensive lines across the country have been underwhelming, at least up to this point. But we're talking about a group that's even really only allowed one sack. Um, but it's really been the run game. And I know, like I said a moment ago, they, they haven't really had a, a real long list of healthy, active running backs that might be difference makers. But you think about they're averaging just 129 yards per game. And just 99 against Ball State. So as you ramp up level of competition, you would like to think that Georgia can take some of the pressure off the passing attack with a capable run game. How does South Carolina make this thing interesting? Okay, uh, few reasons why I think they're going to have to operate at a ridiculous level just to make it interesting. And even if they do all these things, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win. But here's what they have to do to make it interesting. Spencer Rattler's got to be absolutely out of control. And he has been excellent so far this year. Uh, granted, last week, take it with a grain. You go and you, and you play like you played against lower-level competition, you're going to roll. But we're talking about a guy right now that's thrown for about 700 yards in two games. And you look at how he played, especially under duress against North Carolina. I mean, he was running for his life, having to extend plays, having to get the ball out quick. It was not ideal circumstances for Spencer Rattler, but I think he showed some of his maturity. I think he showed that he was going to hang in there. He's going to battle. He's going to do the best he could. There was a few lapses in situational awareness, like maybe the fourth and 19, where he threw a comeback at eight, nine, 10 yards. That's a shot where Dowell Loggins is, is designing a throw that's going to go to the end zone. And Rattler threw it underneath because they were playing very soft in coverage. Even if it's picked, you still got to throw that ball. Either way, he has been very accurate, and I think he's been really solid when it comes to being good enough to extend to extend plays and allow his receivers a little bit more time to uncover. Last year, Spencer Rattler didn't look comfortable at all against Georgia. I mean, at all. Granted, different offense, different style, more mature, further along as far as his own development. So last year, people are pointing to, well, he's 13-25 last year. He had two picks, all this other stuff. I think he's a much better player this year than he was when he faced the Bulldogs last year. He's not going to run. It's not who he is all of last year. He just had 46 yards rushing, but he can buy time. But I think against Georgia, Dow Loggins has got to be real smart about putting him in a position with that offensive line that has some question marks, might be going young, even in a couple places with some freshmen that got thrust into the lineup last week. They're going to have to be really smart about how they attack, how much time they take, and how quickly they're getting the ball out of his hands and slow the pass rush with some screens and some things that might be a little bit of misdirection. So he's got to play out of his mind. The offensive line has to be so much better than they've been. Uh, two weeks ago was terrible. I, I'm not going to try to put a silver lining on that. It was a terrible performance by the offensive line going against North Carolina. North Carolina had one of their best performances in the last 25 years as far as rushing the quarterback. So many missed tackles. There's so many plays made behind the line of scrimmage. So the offensive line has to play the best game of their life against an excellent defensive front. And then thirdly, I think South Carolina absolutely has to have a massive play in special teams. Now, they've had this in the past. 
whether it's a return touchdown, whether it's a couple of faked punts, whether it's a surprise onside kick like we saw against North Carolina two weeks ago, whether it's a, a fake field goal that they end up taking to the house. They're going to have to make two or three plays on special teams that could flip some of the momentum in the game. They're going to pin Georgia inside their own five-yard line. But either way, Georgia has a significant advantage in this game and should win the game comfortably. But I would be surprised if South Carolina doesn't look better than they did two weeks ago against North Carolina. Let's go to game number two that we're going to preview. Going to go a little bit deeper in this one because I think this one has a chance to be really competitive. It's Tennessee traveling to Florida, and we know that the Gators have not lost a home game to Tennessee since 2003, so they have a nine-straight win streak in the process against the Volunteers there in the Swamp. Here's some of the questions that I need answered for both Tennessee and for Florida and just for the matchup in general. Can Tennessee continue their dominance on the ground? Of course, we look at what they did as of right now. They are fourth in college football in rushing yards per game. Take into account, yes, it's Virginia. Yes, it's an FCS opponent. Either way, Tennessee, 257 rushing yards a game. And it's not just, you know, one guy. I mean, they're spreading it out evenly amongst a bunch of guys. I mean, they got a lot of guys at running back that are very solid. Jalen Wright has over nine yards of carry. Uh, he's been amazing. Uh, Jabari small over six yards of carry Dylan Sampson has four touchdowns in the opener against Virginia. I mean, they have three backs that can flat out get it, but here's the thing that's amazing is that they're having this much success on the run game, even in spite of being at full strength along the offensive line, they have played pretty well. Obviously the left side of the offensive line, a couple transfers. You got John Campbell there at left tackle. You got Andre Carrick. They're at left guard. You got Javante Spragans, who's a holdover from last year at right guard. And then Gerald Mincy, who's finally in after being unwilling to play left tackle for a while. He's now playing right tackle. He looks pretty good in the run game. Pass pro, maybe a bit of a question as of right now, but still run game looks very solid. And then if they can somehow get Cooper Mays back this week, still a question mark as of right now, he's their center, but he was a preseason all SEC pick at center. If he could be back this week, that would go a long way in making that offensive line look even better than they've looked through two weeks. And like I've said, they've looked pretty good. They're going up against a really stout run defense. Now, Florida, not as crazy disruptive as they've been in the past, but they've done a pretty good job against two outfits against the run. Utah, just 105 rushing yards, but the running backs had only 66. So obviously, Wildcat quarterback Nate Johnson had some big plays with his legs, but the running backs, for the most part, held in check against that Florida defensive line. McNeese State had just 46 yards rushing, so it's hard to really get a feel as to whether or not last week's performance is an indicator of future success. They're not a group that's really going to penetrate and create a lot of negatives, but they'll be strong and stout at the point. They have five defensive tackles that are over 320 pounds, including one that's 420 pounds or so, depending on what time of day you decide to weigh them in. So that's the big question. Can Tennessee continue to run the ball at will? I think it's going to be obviously a lot harder against a Florida group that's going to likely sell out against the run. Question number two. Can the Tennessee passing attack get going? Joe Milton's been okay. I would not say he's been good. I would not say he's been terrible. I'd say he's been okay, but we need more from him. Right now, he's 10th in the SEC in passing yards. That's that's not going to get it done for Tennessee. 
good news is, even though the explosive plays haven't been there, he's been really smart with the football. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. He has yet to throw an interception in a Tennessee uniform. That's 207 pass attempts since his last interception. Ironically enough, his last interception actually came against Wisconsin in 2020. The quarterback of that Wisconsin team won Graham Mertz. He'll be facing off against this weekend, who is now the uh, the quarterback of the Florida Gators. The explosive plays have to come at some point through the air. That's who Tennessee's identity has been in the last couple of years. And unless they just completely alter who they are and become a run first outfit, which I don't anticipate this offense, if it's going to reach its potential has to hit some of the plays downfield. You think about where they were last year. They had 55 plays that went for 20 plus yards, 27 plays that went for 40 plus yards last year. So far this year, just four pass plays of 20 plus yards and two of 40 plus yards. And the longest pass play as of right now was a screen to McAllen Castles. So they're going to have to be better. Milton last week was just two for nine on throws that traveled downfield. And then through the intermediates between 10 and 20 yards or so, just four of 12 last week. So he's got to be a whole heck of a lot better on the intermediate accuracy. He's got to be better on the downfield accuracy. And then I'm also curious too, What's Florida's approach going to be? Do they sell out against the run and dare Joe Milton to get more accurate on the downfield throws? Or do they maybe play a little more conservatively, hope that they can hold up up front in the run game while trying to defend the deep ball like teams have done up to this point? So that's, I think, a big question mark. Can the Tennessee passing attack get going against a, a group that I'm not sure exactly what they're going to prioritize as far as what they take away? The other th- things that I'm worried about in this game are checking out in this game. Can Florida's run game get going? The offense against Utah, a little one-dimensional. They they couldn't get a whole lot going on the ground against Utah. As a result, it was the Graham Mertz show. But last week against McNeese, went for about six and a half a carry. Obviously not a good example of the type of defense they're going to be playing against this weekend. Montreal Johnson's got to get a bunch of touches. I think you got to get Trevor Etienne. Those two combined, I'd like to see both with about 40 touches in the game. Probably Montreal, about 25 like ATN, maybe 10 to 15. Then if you get Webb in there, he's the number three back. He had a nice look against McNeese last week, a couple touchdowns in the process, up to 71 yards. Maybe they get him going a little bit involved as well, give him a couple touches or at least in the two-back situation, maybe he gets a look or two. They're going against a defensive line that's been outstanding. They have completely overwhelmed the first two teams they've played. They lead the SEC in tackles for loss with 25 and have allowed just 87 yards rushing Per game up to this point. Of course, it's going to be very difficult, I think, to run it on a group that moves and stunts and features athleticism. So if they can't run it, can Graham Mertz beat Tennessee? It's a big question. So far on the underneath stuff, he's been lights out. He's 35 of, 20, uh, 35 of 39 on throws that travel less than 10 yards downfield. Most of that is going to be at the line of scrimmage. I think he's 16 of 17 on throws at the line of scrimmage and has just three incompletions on throws under 10. But are they going to basically come up? Tennessee, are they going to come up and get aggressive with a defense that appears to be very improved? Their pass defense, I think, is better. I really believe that they are. Part of the reason why I feel like their pass defense is improved is because I think they do a really good job as far as rushing the passer. They have 11 sacks through two games, whether it's James Pierce, uh, Norman Lott, Tyler Barron, And then, of course, Aaron Beasley with the blitzes that he's able to bring from the second level. That's a handful to take into account the type of speed and aggression that they play with. 
He's going to go after Ricky Pearsaw, and I think Tennessee needs to sell out against Ricky Pearsaw. So far, 20 targets so far this year. The next closest Gator has only been targeted six times. So Ricky Pearsaw, the all-points bulletin for Tennessee defensively, will be on the transfer from Arizona State. The last thing you need to take into account, Tennessee has kind of struggled on the road. People will point to last year's LSU game as the anomaly. I agree. Last year's LSU game was a phenomenal performance. They jumped out and got going pretty quick. But you look at some of the other performances. They were down 10-0 to South Carolina, 17-7 to Pittsburgh, 21-3 against Georgia. They have not gotten off to great starts on the road in the last two years. So they need to be better on the road in what should be a hostile environment. I lean Tennessee in the game. I just think they have a little bit too much firepower, and I think Joe Milton's due. I think he's going to play better. I still expect the pass rush for Tennessee to have some success, and I think Grand Mertz will feel the heat a little bit if they can't get one of their other wide receivers going. So I'm taking the Vols, and I also think I'm not quite going to lay the points. I don't trust them enough just yet to do that. But I think the Vols close in this game. And then finally, Kansas State and Missouri, a little bit quicker on this game. Right now, I look at Kansas State's defense, and I think Austin Moore is a guy that everybody needs to know about. Missouri's ground game, uh, they, it worked against South Dakota, but they couldn't get much going last week against Middle Tennessee. Now they're up against a group that has totally stuffed Troy, and Troy had one of the longest winning streaks in the country prior to coming up way short last week against Kansas State. This is a group that really lives behind the line of scrimmage. They're very athletic in the front. I think they're more athletic than they were last year, and they're going to continue to press the issue, especially with some of the athletic guys up front. Keep an eye on Austin Moore. That's the guy that you need to really account for. He is off the charts good. Brady Cooks, the quarterback for Missouri, last year really struggled in this game. So I think it's going to be really important for the run game to get going for Missouri. If they can't get the run game going, it's going to put a lot of pressure on their quarterback, and I think that's going to be a very difficult one to be in. And then they go up against Missouri's defense. They absolutely 100% have to stop the run. The Wildcats, 235 yards and three touchdowns last week against the Troy defense. That's really solid. People are going to say it's Troy. That's a really, really solid defense. And they also, Missouri needs to make sure they keep Phillip Brooks in check. He's that kind of do everything piece now for the offense. They obviously have excellent running backs, but Brooks is the guy that can kind of do a lot of different things for you and beat you a lot of different ways. Seven catches, 94 yards and a touchdown while also scoring on the ground last week against Troy. So keep that guy bottled up as best you can. I think this is going to be a really tough game that's going to be found in the line of scrimmage. I expect it to be pretty low scoring. I think both defenses I have a ton of respect for. I just like Kansas State's offense just a little bit better. I think they get it done, but I expect it to be a really, really close ball game. I'm thinking a field goal at the buzzer secures it for the Big 12 champs. The backyard brawl. Pitt is traveling to Morgantown to take on West Virginia. No love lost in this game. Honored to be on the call. Can't wait to be there for this. I've called Egg Bowls, but based on the people I've talked to, this is about as hostile as it gets. Both teams right now trying to find their footing. You look at what West Virginia has done up to this point, defensively have been the biggest concerns, in particular giving up big plays. His secondary has struggled. Been soft in coverage, have given up big plays. They're among the worst as far as giving up 25-plus yard passes. Penn State crushed them on it, but part of that was, I think, because of how they sold out against the run against Penn State. Dared Drew Aller to beat them, and Drew Aller was able to do that in what was a relatively convincing victory. The other side of the ball for West Virginia, Garrett Green, 
excellent athlete, threw the ball really well downfield last week. Can some of the success that he found last week carry over with a wide receiver core that I think is still kind of trying to find their footing? Keep an eye on the tight end to Cole Taylor. I think he's got a chance to continue to grow in this offense. And there might be a player here or there, whether it's Devin Carter who missed last week. If he's back, he's probably going to be the go-to guy, I would think, in the passing attack. They're going to try to run the ball too, but you know with Pitt, albeit last week not the case, Pat Narduzzi's defenses are going to sell out against the run. It was not a good performance whatsoever from Pitt just a week ago. Gave up a lot of big plays early to Cincinnati. They got gashed, they missed tackles, and it was a very uncharacteristic performance from a pit defense that's been very proud for a number of years. You would think that that group's probably heard a lot of chatter this week from their head coach and from their defensive staff about how they fit in the run, how they tackle in space, and how they get ball carriers to the ground. Phil Jerkovic is now the quarterback for Pitt, and the accuracy issues that plagued him at Boston College continue to exist he was just 10 of 32 last week, four completions in the first half, and they have to find a way to get Bub Means going. Bub Means is their big, physical, wide receiver with great speed on the perimeter. You hear all offseason about what Bub Means might be able to do in this offense. Well, 11 targets last week against Cincinnati, zero receptions. He's got to make contested catches, and he's got to be a difference maker for the Panthers moving forward. And then as far as what West Virginia has to try to do against Phil Dracovic. Can they pressure him? Can they get heat on him? And can they lock down and coverage a little bit on the back end? I think this is going to be a great game. Can't wait to be there. Expect it to be pretty low scoring and to be a dogfight because both defenses have heard some whispers the last couple of weeks about subpar performance. It's going to be an awesome one to watch. Let's go to Minnesota and North Carolina. Minnesota's offense is one that's a little bit difficult to figure out. Yeah, they were able to run the ball really well against Eastern Michigan, but the passing attack under Ethan Kaliokmanis, you thought that that group was going to be significantly improved. Well, as of right now, it's a group that's still trying to find themselves just a little bit. So I think the best thing for Minnesota is that the style of play that they're going to employ will keep Drake May off the field. So maybe their best defense is going to be their offense. Can they run the football? We look at what North Carolina did last week with their defensive performance against Appalachian State. It was a little bit unrecognizable compared to what we saw the week before. Last week against Appalachian State, they gave up 219 yards on the ground. Remember just two weeks ago, how many sacks, how many negative plays, how much pressure, they played phenomenal. You thought that group had turned the corner. They took a little bit of a step back last week, but you would think they've heard about it all week long. I think they'll play better in this particular game. It's going to be interesting to see exactly how the touches are divvied up. You got Darius Taylor, the excellent running back, went for 193. Sean Tyler added 93 more. All of a sudden, I think this Minnesota offense is reverting back a little bit more to who they were last year. So I think they're going to have to try to impose their will at the line of scrimmage. As far as North Carolina's offense is concerned, we know who it starts and finishes with. It's absolutely Drake May. Even though last week, Amarian Hampton had 200 and something yards on the ground against the proud Appalachian State defense, that's going to be mostly to take some of the pressure off of Drake May. When Chip Lindsey was hired, the new offensive coordinator for UNC, they wanted to be more balanced. They found that balance last week, and Drake May, doing what Drake May does, put together a remarkable two-minute drive to give themselves a chance to steal it in regulation. But you look at Minnesota, there's a very 
very stout group against the run. They've always been good against the run. I think this defensive staff does such a great job of preaching fundamentals, playing good, sound team defense where gaps are accounted for, and they seldom give up big plays on the ground. But there are question marks about whether or not you can get behind them. And there are also at the same time, in the absence of Tez Walker, there are still, even though some people disagree, I think there are still question marks about the wide receiver group at North Carolina. Drake May is going to make everyone look good, but against a group that might be able to stymie the run completely, can he make those wide receivers look great? Because there are some favorable matchups for the Tar Heels on the perimeter. I'm taking the Tar Heels. I expect it to be close, and I think Minnesota will shut down that run game. But man, it's really hard to shut down Drake May. Let's go to LSU and Mississippi State. One of the better games of the weekend, I might add. Vegas doesn't think so. Vegas has LSU as a 10-point favorite. Was a little surprised by that number. Felt like a lot. Felt like a lot. But when you take into account how LSU's offense has played for three quarters of the season, so six out of the eight quarters that they played, the offense has been awesome. First half against Florida State. Last four quarters, obviously, last week, albeit against lower-level competition. You think about what they've done, they've been pretty good. And we just watched Mississippi State defense that while they survived against Jaden Delora and co, that'd be Arizona for those that, that don't know who Jaden Delora is, he's awesome. And he's got great mobility. And Mississippi State, I think, struggled at times with the mobility that Jaden Delora was able to present. The problem is Jaden Delora and company turned the ball over a million times. And so far, this is an attacking defense. They're going to continue to attack. They forced five turnovers last week, and they've been really solid against the run. Well, LSU is not a team that's been super committed to the run, at least up to this point. You would hope that that group continues to excel, but I think this is really going to be about Jaden Daniels. Can he extend plays? Can he make moves on the run? Can he find positive and favorable matchups down the field? I think he can. It'll be really interesting. When Mississippi State's offense is on the field, I'm not sure a ton of people have paid close attention to just how much they've shifted with their offensive mentality. Remember, they were a air raid style of attack. And there was ever a game in which Will Rogers wasn't throwing 50 plus attempts. It was almost surprising. <laughs> so far this year, his expected output has not been anywhere near that up to this point. They bring in Kevin Barbe. They employ a little bit more of a balance attack, even a run first style of attack in some ways. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see can Will Rogers continue to stay comfortable against what should be a good pass rush. I think you look at this LSU defensive front, I think they're going to be a tough team to just run the ball straight against. They're going to put the pressure on Will Rogers' shoulders, and they're going to challenge the wide receivers. The biggest question mark for LSU continues to be the defensive backs. I think at this point, they lost a lot of one-on-ones against Florida State, but obviously we're not going to get a great indicator as to whether or not they've taken the next step with Grambley. They've shuffled the deck a little bit. They have some new faces in there trying to play a bunch of guys, trying to figure out who's going to play the very best. The big question is, can the Mississippi State receivers take care of business against the LSU DBs? I'm not 100% sold that they'll be able to right now. I like LSU, but I would take the points with Mississippi State in what I think has a chance to be a relatively low-scoring affair. BYU and Arkansas. Arkansas's run game so far has not yet been where it needs to be. Against both Kent State and Western Carolina, they're averaging about three and a half yards a carry. That's not what you want. Arkansas has to get the run game going. KJ Jefferson's great. He's a great player. I think they have adequate 
if not above adequate wide receiver play. Like they have good weapons for the most part, but the run game has to get going against BYU, and that will not be an easy thing to do. So far, BYU is giving up almost nothing against the run. I mean, almost nothing. They are so stout, so heavy. So if Arkansas can't quite get the game going on the ground, I think Arkansas is more athletic on the perimeter. So I do think they can win some matchups on the perimeter, but it's not going to be a real comfortable win for them. Playing against a group that is stout against the run, that's going to sell out against the run. The offense for BYU is still very much a work in progress. So this will also be a good indicator as to whether or not Arkansas has improved defensively, especially in the back end. But I lean Arkansas in the game. I think they will get the run game going, but it might have to be on the perimeter where they use their athletic advantage against a very stout, very physical BYU front. Now, a few more games that aren't expected to be highly competitive adventures. So we're going to go through a list of teams that I have a tremendous amount of respect for and what I want to see from them. Maybe something that's a bit of a work in progress. Maybe something that I've really liked so far and I want to see them continue to excel. So here's some things that I'm listing that I want to see from some of the teams that are heavy favorites going in to the weekend. Let's start with Colorado. So far, we know the passing attack is tremendous. We know that they've done an amazing job in featuring weapons. We know Shador Sanders is doing such a great job distributing the football, whether it be in the pocket or on the move. He's been playing as well as any quarterback in college football up to this point. But the one thing that I want to see from Colorado this week is improved play along the offensive line through two games this year. They've allowed a pressure rate of 44%. So that means nearly half the time that Shador Sanders is dropping back, he's feeling some pressure. That's not ideal. That's the ninth worst mark in college football. They've also allowed a sack on 11% of the pass dropbacks that Shador Sanders has made. That's the worst mark in the Pac-12 and the eighth worst mark in college football. So 11 sacks given up already by this offensive line. They got to be better. And honestly, you think about it too. Another thing I'd like to see, I want to see him be just a little bit better against the run as well. Against TCU, Colorado allowed 260 rushing yards and four rushing touchdowns. There were no sacks, no tackles for a loss coming for the buff. So they really couldn't get after the opposing quarterback at all. And then while Nebraska managed 222 yards on the ground, the numbers statistically against the run have not been great for the buffs. You got to think about the fact that 106 of those rushing yards last week came from Jeff Sims and 57 of those 106 came on the one play where he had on second and 15, I believe it was a QB draw down the right sideline for a touchdown. So it looked like they'd taped strides. They'd taken strides last week in rushing yards given up, but they're going to have to continue to improve knowing what's coming up against both Oregon and against USC. So I want to see the offensive line, frankly, and then I want to see the front seven defensively for, for Colorado play a little bit better this week against Colorado State. Let's go to Penn State. Interesting game this week, by the way. Not quite sure what's going on with Illinois. A once proud defense really got shredded last week by Kansas. It is at home, so this will be a difficult spot to go play. I would think that Penn State's going to feel a little bit of hostility, at least going into the game. The one thing I'm really interested in watching for Penn State, and I've been impressed with it up to this point, 
but I want to see continued utilization of the deep ball. They haven't done as much of that as of right now. They have one pass that has traveled more than 20 yards downfield. That was the 72-yard catch and run by Keandre Lambert-Smith against West Virginia. I think Drew Aller's depth of target right now is just six yards. So a lot of things are at the line of scrimmage. A lot of things are behind the line of scrimmage. A lot of things are just you know hitches underneath stuff. And part of that had to do with who they're playing against. You think about who Delaware is and what Delaware wanted to do. Delaware basically said, hey, we're going to keep everything in front of us. We're going to force him to be patient. And 71% of his attempts are coming with the, within either 10 yards and the line of scrimmage. So, I mean, it's just not a lot down the field. So you got to take into account, man, hey, they're running the ball pretty well. You know that Katron Allen and, and Nick Singleton are doing a great job there. But at some point, as Penn State continues to develop as a team this year, the deep ball passing attack off of play action is going to have to be a big part of what they use. And then another thing on the defensive side, that prowler position, people might not know exactly what that is. It's kind of like a hybrid position for Manny Diaz's defense. Last year, it was occupied by Jair Brown, who I loved. He's one of my favorite players in all of college football. Now it's being occupied by Jalen Reed. Now, Reed played only nine defensive snaps against Delaware. Got a little banged up. Um, but I think in this game, it being the Big Ten opener, he's going to need to showcase what he can do from what is a very important spot in that defense. Last year, Jair Brown was very disruptive, had four and a half sacks, had seven tackles for loss, and it really created some position versatility for Manny Diaz. So I'm going to be watching Jalen Reed and how comfortable he is in that role that was departed by Jair Brown. So that prowler position and the deep ball passing attack, that's what I'll be watching very closely for Penn State when they go up against the Illinois Fighting Illini. Notre Dame. What do I want to see from Notre Dame as of right now? Four sacks in three games, which is not what you want, right? That, that averaged over the course of a 13-game regular season would be 17 sacks. That's, that's, not, that's going to be about 120th in college football if they continue at this rate. Now, you're going to say, well, hang on a second. They played Navy. Not a lot of opportunities for sacks against Navy. They obviously played against Tennessee State. There were some opportunities for sacks in that game. They just couldn't quite reel them in. And then they had plenty of pressure on Brennan Armstrong last week. But they have to do, I think, a better job of when they get there. If they can get there just a touch quicker, that'd be awesome. But when they get there, they got to be able to drop the opposing quarterback to get teams off of the field. Now, here are the positives. Love what they're doing as far as completion percentage allowed. Love that they have five interceptions. Love that they're seventh in total defense overall. They're 11th in red zone touchdown percentage, 15th in scoring, 15th in touchdowns allowed. That's three. 18th in rushing touchdown defense, 28th in average yards per carry. So there are a lot of really positive statistical evidence that would indicate that Notre Dame's defense has taken significant strides, but they're not crazy dynamic along the front. And against the likes of USC, against the likes of Ohio State, against some of the teams that they'll face way on down the road, Duke, for instance, heck, even Clemson, even though they're not ranked in the top 25 right now, can you pressure Cade Klubnik? 
if Notre Dame's going to get where they want to go, and that's to the playoff. And then when they get to the playoff to beat some of the teams that they might face off against in the playoff, they're going to have to have a little bit more dynamic front along the defensive line. So I don't know if that necessarily means using the linebackers a little bit more, whether that's number eight, Maris Leofau, uh, number 27, J.D. Bertrand. Like, are they going to blitz those guys a little bit more? Uh, what about Jack Kaiser? You know, obviously a really versatile weapon, especially in some sub packages. I think he's got some good speed. And another guy too, I'm super, super bullish on is number three, Jalen Sneed. I think he might be arguably in their front seven. He might be their most dynamic guy. Now he's young, but he's a great blitzer and he plays really hard. So I would expect his role to grow. So I'll be watching closely how they are able to affect the opposing quarterback this week against Central Michigan. And by the way, this opposing quarterback that they're playing, Burt Emanuel, now he can run and he can extend plays and he's going to get outside the pocket and he's going to create a few issues for you defensively if you're not really sound. I love the back end. I think the secondary is great, but I want to see that pass rush pass rush tee off, whether it's Botello, whether it's Jean-Baptiste, the transfer from Ohio State, or whether it's Joshua Burnham. I want to see the defensive line get after the opposing quarterback this week. They've done an adequate job, but if we're going to find one area for Notre Dame to really improve to make this defense go from great to elite, that's where that improvement needs to come. Let's go next to the Florida State Seminoles. Nitpicking here, by the way, because I've loved everything I've seen from them through the first two weeks of the season. I want to see them continue to develop adequate depth. And I thought that there were some nice takeaways from some of the things Mike Norvell has set up to this point this season. He said he did an off-season study, which the results showed that over the last four years, national champions had just one defensive lineman play more than 50% of the allocated snaps. So as a result, they're taking that to heart. Fabian Lovett, obviously off-season injury, has just 32 snaps through two games. He's a defensive tackle. Uh, Joshua Farmer, over two, two games, 40 snaps. Dennis Briggs, 33 snaps. Jared Verse and Patrick Payton, those two unbelievable edge defenders, just 66 snaps each. Now, I think it's going to be really interesting to continue to watch some of the guys that are rotating into the lineup are they going to continue to get the run that they've gotten up to this point? Because that might be really beneficial down the road. When you can roll guys and you're not concerned about taking your ones out in favor of your twos, that's going to keep guys fresh. That's going to keep them aggressive. And that's going to make sure that, hey, man, I got 30 snaps tonight to make a play. I'm going to make every single one of those 30 snaps count. So continue to watch Florida State against Boston College this week. How much are they rolling their guys in the front seven defensively? And when they do roll them, are the twos as effective as the ones? If they are, look out. That's a great sign for Florida State's defense. Let's go next to Ohio State. They're teeing off against Western Kentucky. A lot of eyes are going to be on the offense. With all due respect, I'm not going to learn a ton about Ohio State and their ultimate potential by watching them move the ball up and down the field against Western Kentucky. Western Kentucky right now, they're averaging 450 yards a game. Uh, <laughs> you know, So my thought process when watching the Buckeyes this weekend will be watching their defensive backs. They've got a very veteran quarterback, Western Kentucky does. That's Austin Reed. The guy's thrown for a billion yards in his career. It's kind of an air raid style of attack, but they will 
push the ball down the field a little bit more. It's not dink and dunk. They're going to be dynamic. Now, this is a difficult offense to defend. So far, the defense for Ohio State has shown improvement by leaps and bounds. They are not giving up the big plays that they gave up down the stretch last year. They've given up just 12 plays of 10 or more yards. That's the second best in college football. They've only given up three plays that have gained more than 20 yards. So they have done a great job, great job eliminating the big plays. That was a big point of emphasis in the offseason. The other thing that I don't feel like either side of the ball is doing a great job of right now, offensively, they've been just 7 of 23 on third down. I want to see them play better on third down. And then defensively, last week against Youngstown State, they gave up 7 of four, seven of 15 conversions, which is just not great when thinking about the level of competition and being able to extend drives. So I'll be watching a lot of that Ohio State defense. I believe they've improved. I really genuinely believe that they have improved drastically, but I want to see it to continue on because I do think this is the most difficult offensive test that they've faced up until this season. Alabama. They go on the road to Tampa to play against South Florida. A little bit of an obscure uh, game now against Alex Golish, who's taking over at South Florida. He's formerly the offensive coordinator of Tennessee. So we know that this is a style of attack that has at times given Alabama a few fits. I, however, will not be watching the defense in this game because I don't know if that's necessarily going to be an indicator of future success. What I want to see from Alabama more than anything else. So many people are going to sit there and say, well, I want to watch the quarterback. I want to watch the quarterback. I want to watch the quarterback. I do too. More on him in just a minute. But I want to watch the offensive line. The offensive line so far against Texas, they averaged just two yards a carry. All right, two yards a carry against Texas. The offensive line is the strength of this team. They're the biggest strongest offensive line that Alabama's had in a really long time. However, they have been very susceptible to the pass rush, have not handled that very well. And so far through two games, they have not gotten the movement up front that they're going to need to have when the level of competition ramps up and SEC play commences just a week or two from now. So I'll be watching the offensive line very closely in this game. And then naturally, I'm going to be watching the quarterback. Jalen Milrow had his confidence shaken just a little bit last week. You could tell at times he was seeing ghosts, got hit a couple times. Next thing you know, his eyes are start going to the rush, and he's not seeing out in front of his wide receivers as he's delivering the football. Do his eyes drop? I'll be watching that very closely. What's his accuracy like? What are the progressions like? It looked like at times last week there were a lot of one-to-run situations, meaning if your first receiver's not there, Jalen, take off and go make a play. Well, are they going to give him a little bit deeper playbook to say, hey, man, here's progression. One, two, three, and then go. So I'll be watching that very closely and see if he's taking strides in that regard. Also be watching the ball security. That's the biggest question mark coming into the season. It remains a question mark two games in. Can Jalen Milrow be smart with the football? And if it's not there, is he still going to try to fit it in? Because if he does and it gets intercepted, he'll probably have to give way and get some reps from Tyler Buckner, potentially Ty Simpson. Who knows? Maybe even Dylan Lonergan the true freshman, even though I don't know if he's quite ready to get real live game reps at the college level. So I would think if he's not playing well early in the game, they're going to try to get another quarterback in there, see if he handles it a little bit better. But I think Jalen Milrow, if he comes out firing and plays really well, that would say a lot about the type of guy he is because he could bounce back from obviously a lot of adversity that he faced against the Texas Longhorns. But the quarterback spot, obviously all the focus 
will be on that group and the offensive line in general when they take on the Bulls in Tampa at 3.30 Eastern on ABC. And then finally, the Washington Huskies, they're going to be traveling to East Lansing. Be careful, Washington. Be careful. I think it's a tricky spot to be in. A lot of people writing off Michigan State. A lot of people saying, well, you know, they don't have their coach. There's a lot of distractions, all this other stuff. Be careful. You back a team into the corner like this, they're going to come out swinging. I think Michigan State will play really hard in this ballgame. So really be the first test for Washington's defense through the year. We know they're great in the front seven defensively. I really like this group collectively across the front and then at the second level. But the big question coming into this year was just how good are they going to be in the back end? They gave up 414 yards against both Tulsa and against Boise State. Not average teams by any stretch, G5 opponents, but quality G5 opponents, I might add. So this will really be the first test for the back end. Noah Kim's coming off of a terrific performance last week. He won Big Ten Player of the Week. But when I think about what he looked like two weeks ago, it was a little bit of a slow start when they came out of the gates in the opener. Can Washington's defensive backs hold up against what's a pretty athletic group of wide receivers and a quarterback that if he catches fire... He can pick you apart a little bit and extend some plays with his legs. As always, we finish the week by giving you a couple of gambling tidbits that are probably worth taking into account. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say like I'm, you know, Jimmy the Greek or anything. I'm not <laughs> like I enjoy looking at this stuff. Take it with a grain of salt. But there's one thing that I've learned following lines over the course of time is that Vegas has a lot of money and Vegas does not often lose bets. They don't, they, they do it. They will occasionally. And so far through the first two weeks of the season, if you want to include week zero, fine, but there's just not a huge sample size to go off of there. Vegas has been getting crushed. Okay. Public money has been dominating. Relatively speaking. Now, some have been, fortuitous breaks like Penn State deciding to run it in on West Virginia to cover at the end of the game, which was really absurd. Uh, Oregon returning a, a fumble to the house to make it an eight-point game and to cover. Uh, there have been a bunch of very public plays that have been profitable up to this point. So I would employ everybody to start becoming maybe just a little bit more contrarian when looking at some of the possibilities on the card this week. And I'm going to give you a few off the top of the list. Right now, Maryland is getting 87% of the money and 87% of the tickets. That spread is 14 and a half. The contrarian angle would be to take Virginia. I don't know how you can based on what we've seen so far, but clearly Vegas I mean, you see that much action coming in on one side, you probably want to fade the public in that situation. Alabama, 93% of the tickets. That spread is 33 against South Florida. Arizona, 92% of the tickets. That spread is 18. These are all favorites, I might add. Favorites getting all this attention, something to take into account. Kansas State, a road favorite. That line is three and a half. They are getting 92% of the tickets. 88% of the tickets are on Florida State. Another favorite, another huge favorite on the road. 26 and a half is the nine right now. 
88% of the tickets, 86% on Penn State, another road favorite. Are you catching a trend here? Are you catching a trend? Road favorites are not often profitable. And look at just how public some of these road favorites are. 14 and a half is the line. Illini have struggled through two games. So everybody and their brothers on Penn State. 86% of the tickets on Syracuse, another road favorite. Duke is getting 85% of the tickets. They're a huge home favorite against Northwestern. Colorado is getting 84% of the tickets as a home favorite of 23 and a half. Kansas, 84% of the tickets on the road at Nevada. They're getting 28. All I'm saying is I'm not saying fade all these or anything. I'm not saying fade all these. But anytime you see this much action on favorites, it's got to lead you to pause just a little bit. Now, I don't think we're quite at the point where we start having, but this is a good scenario this week. There's a lot of look-ahead situations. A lot of look-ahead situations that you need to be mindful of because there are a lot of big games next week and huge games the week after that. And then this week would be a game where some teams, not saying they'll sleepwalk, but maybe they don't have their best stuff given, say, what they endured last week or what they might have coming up next week. So I leave you with that. Just be mindful of backing massive, massive public favorites. It's been profitable up to this point. Just knowing how big those buildings are in Vegas, I do not think it will be profitable indefinitely. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. I continue to ask all of you to like, rate, and subscribe. It means a lot to us when you guys leave us a review. So if you could do that, that would be terrific as well. We've seen all of you leaving the reviews the last few days. We really appreciate you guys. Our numbers have gone up drastically and we wouldn't be able to do it if not for the support that you've given the program up to this point. Like, rate, subscribe, or if you get the podcast, you've hit the thumbs up there on the YouTube channel. That'd be awesome as well. For all of us here at Always College Football, Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day and a great weekend. And it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.